You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we are going to the heart of the matter here. We are going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. It's my contention, and this is the central claim. Are the theistic arguments in the world could work? But if a resurrection isn't true, then... Let's pack it up and go home and find some other belief system because Christianity's done, as far as I'm concerned. So who's coming on to talk about the resurrection? Well, this time it's Tony Costa. He's earned a BA and an MA in the study of religion, biblical studies, and philosophy from the University of Toronto. He received his PhD in the area of theology and New Testament studies from Radboud University in the Netherlands. His area of expertise is biblical and systematic theology, cults, the New Age movement, and comparative world religions with a specialization in Islam. <laughs> Tony is also an ordained minister of Osper. As a Christian apologist, Dr. Acosta gives reasons for a valid belief in Christianity and also advocates for unique claims of Jesus Christ. He also lectures and debates at various universities and colleges on the existence of God, Muslim-Christian relations, as well as the credibility of the Christian faith. Tony is a professor of apologetics for Toronto Baptist Seminary. He also teaches as an instructor of a School of Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto in the area of New Testament studies and Second Temple Judaism. He serves as an, as an adjunct professor of Heritage College and Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario, and Providence Theological Seminary in Franklin, Tennessee. Tony is also a member of a network of Christian scholars in Canada. He has lectured throughout Canada, the United States, and overseas. He is the author of Worship in the Risen Jesus in Pauline Letters, New York, Peter Lang, Publishers, 2013, as well as a contributor of scholarly essays in Christian origins in Greco-Roman culture and Christian origins in Hellenistic Judaism and various journals. Tony is happily married to a wonderful wife, has three children and a grandson, and resides in Toronto, Canada, and today he resides on the Deeper Waters podcast. So uh, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast, Dr. Costa. It's my pleasure to be with you, Nick. I'm looking forward to a great show. If my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, sure. I uh, I was born in uh, Toronto, Canada. Uh, my parentage is uh, Portuguese, and I was raised in a Roman Catholic home. Uh, I was very religious, uh, but very lost. I uh, did not know the Lord. I did not know what it was to have a living relationship, a uh, saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the age of 15, I, I came to hear the gospel through uh, two cousins of mine who had uh, come to know Christ, and uh, they they challenged me. They challenged my uh, my walk, and um, they challenged me to get right with God. And, and so I became a Christian at a young age, and then quite quickly, uh, as a young Christian, I noticed that um, my faith was being challenged by a number of uh, cults and other groups, other religions, people who were telling me that they had the right way and so forth. Well, 
what that did was that uh, launched me into uh, an academic study of scripture and an academic study of uh, the historical Jesus and the resurrection as well. And so that uh, launched me into an academic pursuit. I, I went into, uh, as you stated, my biography mm-hmm. with the University of Toronto, did my bachelor's and master's there, and then uh, proceeded with the doctoral, prog- uh, doctoral studies in Holland and uh, New Testament and theology. And uh, because of that, I've, I've engaged in uh, a number of debates with Muslims and atheists and uh, Mormons and, and those who would challenge historic Orthodox Christianity. Uh, and uh, I, I spend a lot of my time uh, speaking at various conferences, apologetic conferences. I um, teach, uh, as you've noted already, a number of seminaries, uh, academic institutions. And so my, my calling in life, uh, the Lord has called me to equip the saints to, to give reasons for why we believe what we believe and, and to, to know wh- uh, what we believe. So I've been doing this for um, at least um, uh, about 40 plus years. And so it's, it's been a great blessing. Mm-hmm. Now, you've done a lot of debates. And in fact, that's how you got in touch with me, because mm-hmm. you, you actually had done a debate with a Christian. That was a debate with John Torres. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, well, this this obviously was an in-house debate. Uh, I know Pastor John Tors uh, personally, and uh, I've uh, I've spoken at his church before. Um, but uh, John Tors holds to the uh, the Byzantine text tradition. He he believes that the Byzantine manuscripts are superior to the uh, Alexandrian manuscripts. The and the basis the basis of our critical text. And so he uh, had asked me. He had challenged me to debate the issues about whether. The Byzantine text is is the text that we should be using uh, as Christians for our New Testament, or whether the critical text uh, was superior. And so we had a debate in Toronto. Um, I believe it was in the springtime in April. I believe it was. Um, and so it was uh, it was um, an in-house debate, but it was it was edifying in the sense that it it brought this very important issue to the to the fore. And a lot of Christians. Um, are not uh, familiar uh, with with these issues, and these are very important issues because um, there's, of course, the King James only uh, movement that has basically uh, caused a lot of uh, division among Christians uh, in and endorsing just one version of the Bible that is the King James version, and this has led to a lot. It led to a lot of ignorance and and unnecessary uh, fractures in the body of Christ, and so um, I thought it was an important debate. It's it's available online as well, so. I think that uh, that Christians should engage in those in-house debates. Well, I was going to ask you why this that debate matters, but it looks like you already answered that one. So, <laughs> how about this debate, though, that you can take part in, the resurrection of Jesus? I mean, why does this really matter for Christians? Well, I think uh, the resurrection of Jesus uh, is the, as you pointed out, uh, Nick, it is the foundational um uh, doctrine, the foundational element of Christianity, is the very heart of Christianity. If you remove the resurrection of Jesus, you've just removed the heart right out of the body, and you've rendered it dead. And therefore, uh, unlike other religions like Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism, Taoism and, and Sikhism and Judaism and so forth, those religions can survive without their leaders. They can survive without their leader being alive. Um, and so, what distinguishes Christianity, of course, is that 
Christianity is is based first and foremost on that event called the resurrection. And as Paul pointed out, uh, if Christ is not risen, then our faith is vain. And we might as well pack up, like you said, and go home. And we might as well just terminate this Skype call because we're just wasting our time here as well if we believe the resurrection. And so it is the it is the one unique feature of the Christian faith, unlike any other religion or any other movement. If this event did not happen, happen, then we might as well just close down our churches, put them for sale, and, and just move along and find another worldview. Mm-hmm. Well, if you were going up to a man on the street and just making a basic case for a resurrection of Jesus, what would you say? Um, I think that uh, on an evidentialist side, I, I, would, I would cite what, of course, Dr. Gary Habermas and, and um Dr. William Lane Craig, and also your your father-in-law, who is a very good friend of mine, Dr. Mike Lacona. We mm-hmm. we studied under the same doctoral uh, supervisor. We had the same uh, Dr. Vater, the same doctor uh, doctoral father. Mm. Uh, and so, what I would argue is the what has been called the the minimal uh, facts of the resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And this has been enough to convince a number of of even non-Christians people. Uh, like the late uh, Pincus Lapide, who was mm. a Jewish scholar from, from Germany. A Jewish who, New Testament scholar, we might say. Yes, yes that's right, and, and who um, was an Orthodox rabbi. He never became a Christian, but uh, he believed in the resurrection of Jesus uh, as a historical fact. Uh, and we can also think of Simon Greenleaf, um, among others, um, who looked at these, these minimal facts, such as the, the death of Jesus and his honorable burial, the the um, discovery of the empty tomb, the postmortem appearances, and then finally, of course, the origin of the Christian way based on on these four facts that lead up to the fifth. So uh, I would argue those those points. I've argued them in, in debates with atheists. I I remember fondly, Nick. I was uh, I was on a debate with uh, two atheists and an agnostic, and and it was just me against the three. And um, we, I brought up these these minimal facts, and they had a tough time refuting them. So they, one of them tried to refute the burial of Jesus, trying to argue that it wasn't historical, and thereby dismantling the whole argument, but he couldn't. The evidence was so strong, and all the rival arguments, the rival theories that tried to dismiss these minimal, minimal facts have really all fallen by the wayside. You know, it, it's something interesting. You were on Unbelievable debating the resurrection once, I think it was against Ed Atkinson. Yes, correct. And uh, they had, uh, on the maybe past year or so, Gary Habermas against James Crossley. And as soon as Gary Habermas got done with minimal facts, um, Justin Browley, the host, turns over to uh, James Crossley, who is an agnostic or an atheist, which everyone, I mean, Functionally, it's the same for the purpose of debate. He said, well, what do you think about it? He said, I'm, I'm willing to grant all of those. It's no problem. Right. Yeah, if, if you went to the scholars in the field, the scholars in the field wouldn't have any major issues for the most part. Maybe on the barrier of Jesus, you might find a few. But for everything right. else, it's not a big deal. No, no, it's not. It's pretty much granted. And I liked that you brought up Pincus Lapides, because I remember I was on the show once, Atheist Analysis, and he asked me where... Are there any scholars out there who believe in the resurrection of Jesus and aren't Christians? As it said, Pincus Lapides. Right. <laughs> right. We could also think of Geza Vermesh, who, uh, well, was a, actually, who's, a, who's now deceased, but uh, a Jewish scholar who uh, had apparently been a Roman Catholic, and then he left 
uh, and reverted back to Orthodox Judaism. Uh, Dr. Lapid was one of the leading scholars in the Dead Sea Scrolls at, at Oxford, and um, he he wrote uh, a number of books on Jesus. And Wait, do you mean uh, you mean Vermesh or Dr. Lapid again? Uh, Vermesh, Vermesh, yeah. Geza Vermesh, and. Yep. Uh, he also uh, granted the historical reliability of the empty tomb discovery as well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but uh, he was first a uh, confessed uh, Roman Catholic, but then then left uh, and 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 went to Orthodox Judaism. Now, the thing is, you present your case, so I'm going to be trying to give some friendly fire and poking holes in it and such from time to time, if I can, just sure. seeing how well it stands up here. And at the same time, I want to keep in mind, we're doing this also for an internet audience, so we're going to be talking to people who don't talk to scholars, but just people on the street. So, sadly, we have to start with a bare minimum here, and that's that there are a number of people out there, and we're not going to spend the whole show on this, but we're going to say, Jesus never even existed to begin with. Yes, um, well, that the, the Christ myth theory is actually one that... Uh, has been, I think, in my opinion, vigorously uh, refuted by mm. even people like Bart Ehrman. I mean, Bart Ehrman, mm. who's yeah. no champion of, of, of uh, Orthodox Christianity, was at one time, according to his own admission, but now definitely not. Uh, he wrote a book, Did Jesus Exist? And right. in there, he basically blows away the, the Christ myth theorists. And um, the arguments that, that, they, that they marshal are extremely, extremely weak, and their sources that they cite uh, are also not scholars in in the field of New Testament studies. The one probable exception would probably uh, would probably be someone like Robert Price, um, who wrote a book, Jesus um, Jesus is Dead. Uh, I actually reviewed it on the Review of Biblical Literature, and I found his his uh, his book very very weak. Uh, mm -hmm. And even even folks in the in liberal uh, scholarship, even those in the Jesus Seminar. Think Robert uh, Robert Price's uh, arguments are pretty weak. And don't forget also uh, Richard Carrier, who's the favorite yes. one of people on the internet. Yes, he's now become the uh, yes the torchbearer of of the Christ mythers. Yeah, Robert Price was uh, in the book uh, Five Views on the Historical Jesus, and <laughs> if you're if the audience doesn't know my these books, these are books where one person writes an essay, and everyone else in the book critiques what they said. And it, it, it's a very interesting way to look at the views. And in this one, you had Robert Price, John Dominic Crossan, Luke Timothy Johnson, James Dunn, and Daryl Bach all writing together. And the two hardest ones that hit on Robert Price were James Dunn and John Dominic Crossan, which was quite surprising. I mean, James Dunn, he begins <laughs> this and like, gosh, I didn't even know people like this still existed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, yes, indeed. I mean, of course, J uh, John Dominic Crossan um, is is famous for his uh, his denial of the empty tomb, and and mm. he believes Jesus was just thrown into a common a pauper's grave. Um, but the fact that James Cro uh, that uh, John Crossan and James Dunn uh, would would critique um, um, Robert Price on this is telling, particularly Crossan, because Crossan um, is is a controversial scholar. But even Crossan would admit that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure. Yeah. And what I, I, I tell people is, and I, I, I'm not saying something like this to make fun of young earth creationists, but anyone who is a Jesus Memphis and is an atheist, they usually don't hold much ground for young earth creationism. And they right. consider that's, that, they'd say, that's a crank theory. And again, I'm not saying this to be answered on my wife's a young earth creationist. 
But I right. said, you know what? If you think that is a crank fear that should not be taken seriously, Jesus' mythicism is even worse because there are few, far fewer experts in the field, scholars in the field, that will take that position seriously than there are people who, who will actually hold the young of creationism in the field of science. Right. And and there's also a common a common link between Christ mythers and, and those who would argue the pagan dependence theory. Mm-hmm. They will they will argue that Jesus was nothing more than a he was just a creation of, of Egypt uh, Egyptian uh, myths and, and gods and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, made famous by the, the movie um, Zeitgeist. But uh, a lot of this uh, is overwhelmingly rejected by modern day scholarship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we are beginning into the pagan copycat theory a little bit more later on. Um, something that will also be said here is that we're going to the New Testament for the most part to establish these claims. And you will hear people say, well, you are using the Bible to prove the Bible. And that's circular. Mm. Yeah, of course, that, uh, that is a false uh, argument uh, because... Um, when the Bible uh, is is being used as as a document of history, this is no different than than classical historians citing Alexander the Great or Josephus or mm. whichever writer there is. But the argument of circular reasoning with the Bible cannot stand because the Bible, unlike other books, let's say the Quran, for instance, the Bible is a a a text, uh, an encyclopedia rather a text that came together over a 1600-year period written by over 40 different authors in three different languages in various geographical uh, locations. And when one person in the Bible, for example, when the Apostle Paul cites Isaiah or when Jesus cites Moses, for instance, um, this is not a case of circular reasoning. When one biblical passage cites another biblical passage, people will say, well, that's circular reasoning. Well, not so fast. The Bible is also a historical document. When Paul quotes Isaiah from the 8th century B.C., that is not circular argumentation. When Jesus quotes Moses from the 15th century B.C., that's not circular argumentation. Mm. And so, if we are to treat the Bible like historians treat any other source as Mm. historical documents, then, of course, uh, it's not circular reasoning. Inasmuch Mm. as quoting the works of uh, Thucydides or the works of Plato uh, to prove Plato would not be circular reasoning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think people who do this, they don't really understand how debate takes place in scholarly circles. I mean, if you were presenting an appro- this approach to most any scholar of New Testament out there, they would have no problem with you citing Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul as witnesses. Now, they would question a lot of the claims in there, no doubt. They wouldn't take, treat them as inspired or anything, but they'd still say, these are primary sources, we just have to sift through and find out what's true and what isn't. Yeah, what what they mean by that, Nick, of course, is uh, I have a worldview, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to analyze these texts through the lenses of my worldview, which is fine. We all have a worldview, uh, but the 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 issue of the resurrection of Jesus, for instance, the historical documentation is pretty is pretty strong and sound. What 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 is what is undermining uh, the, the the a lot of people when they assess the, the resurrection of Jesus, particularly those who are atheists, agnostics, or liberals, mm-hmm. is they're committed to a worldview, and that worldview says that uh, there are no miracles. We live in a closed system. It's a naturalistic, materialistic worldview, and therefore, since we live in a closed system, we know that miracles can't happen. Therefore, the dead cannot rise, and therefore, mm-hmm. Jesus cannot have risen from the dead. 
So we have to acknowledge that we all come to the table with our presuppositions. We come with biases. And it's not the historical documents per se that they have a problem with. It's the worldview of the writers of the New Testament, which, of mm -hmm. course, they held to a theistic worldview where God could intervene into human affairs and he could cause the dead to rise and, and cause the blind to see and the deaf to hear and so forth. Now that gets us, to, I think, to another common objection, which I was at. These accounts are written by uh, superstitious people who who were pre-scientific, did not know things about the world that we know. So naturally, they're not going to have any problem with a dead man coming back to life. Right, right. Well, as you as you know, Nick, uh, I mean, we do have a. Uh, I think one scholar, I think it was uh, Nicholsberg, once said that uh, that there's a lot of academic snobbery. Uh, mm. We tend to look at the ancients as if somehow they were backwards, that they were uh, regressive, and that they were not as enlightened. So there, 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 there is a, 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 uh, an arrogance uh, in, in that type of approach. Um, the Romans, for example, were, were brilliant engineers. They, they built aqueducts, they, mm -hmm. they built roads, they created the idea of the highway, mm -hmm. the roads around the empire, and so forth. But uh, let's, let's be honest here. Um, these people were not as superstitious as as some folks would have them be. So, for example, just a quick example, Nick. Mm -hmm. If you look at the nativity narrative, the, the story of Jesus' birth and his conception and so forth. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, the angel comes to Mary. Gabriel comes to Mary and says, look, you're, you're going to have a child, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And Mary doesn't say, well, that's wonderful. You know, I believe in a superstitious worldview, and therefore I know that I'm going to become supernaturally impregnated. No, she doesn't say that. What does she say? She says, I'm a virgin. How can I ha have a child since I'm a virgin? I don't know a man. And yeah. so forth. And, and Joseph didn't buy her story that she yeah. was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that her child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph wanted to privately put her away. He wanted to divorce her. He wanted to break the engagement. And so these are not people who think that babies are delivered by storks and that they just drop them off at your home. No, they believe that, hey, you know, human, human conception takes place uh, sexually uh, within a matrimonial home. Uh, and they're not buying this story of supernatural conceptions and, and, and births because they understood uh, how babies are made. So, um, and when Jesus rose from the dead, as you, as you know, in the Gospels, the, the disciples didn't run around saying, wow, hallelujah, God, God has raised Jesus from the dead. No, they're, they're doubtful. They, they, they reject the women's mm -hmm. testimony. Why? Well, because they, they couldn't grasp the idea of a dead man coming back to life. Yeah, I like to let people know, I say, you know, I'll happily grant you these people were pre-scientific, but sure. just because they were pre-scientific doesn't mean they were anti-scientific. Exactly. I mean, we, exactly. We, may, we know a whole lot more today about conception and what happens when a man and woman come together and have a baby. We know a whole lot more about the scientific progress, sure. but sure. they at least knew the basics. Yeah, it's a, it's a fallacy in logic too, uh, Nick. I think you probably... Yeah have realized a lot of these historians and, and, and some of these scientists that question mm -hmm. God's existence. Uh, I think it was, um, who was it now? There was uh, someone who recently uh, pointed out uh, that uh, that a lot of these scientists and historians, uh, I think it was Dr. Michael Heiser, actually, Old Testament scholar with Logos mm -hmm. uh, Software, he pointed out that uh, he thinks it's essential that, that scholars take courses on logic mm -hmm. because this is a fallacy to... It's it's the opposite of the argument from age, which says, well, something since something is very old, it cannot be true. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the flip side of that fallacy is, well, since it's new, it can't be true. Uh, and so, to to argue to argue that 
you know, w- we live in a scientific age. We're in the post-scientific revolution world. Therefore, we're more enlightened. I mean, it's fallacious because just to argue that something is very old, I mean, two plus two equals four has been true since the dawn of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not true because it's just been recently discovered. It has always been true. So to argue that the ancients, uh, something was written uh, 2,000 years ago, means that it was not uh, necess- scientifically true. I think it's a fallacious argument. It, it's a non sequitur. It just doesn't follow. Yeah, I, I like to refer to it as the argument of ancient people are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, well, let's look at some of the claims about G- Jesus here that are essential to the case. One of them is uh, John Dominic Crossan has even gone and said that if anything is a sure fact of history about Jesus, it's that he was crucified. Is that really the case? I mean, can we really be sure he was crucified? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think that uh, for uh, your your Muslim hearers, Nick, I hope that if you do have Muslim uh, uh, hearers on your program, I hope they listen to that point that you just made. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they love quoting Bart Ehrman, they love quoting John Dominic Cross, and when it comes to text-critical uh, mm-hmm. studies of the New Testament, okay, okay, well, if you're going to accept Bart Ehrman's testimony and John Dominic Crossan, then you're going to have to accept that Jesus actually died, which, of course, the Quran denies. Mm -hmm. Now, why do they believe that Jesus actually died? Well, they apply the historical critical method, and historical critical method uses a number of criteria, criterion of embarrassment, criterion of multiple attestation, dissimilarity, and so Mm -hmm. forth. When you look at the death of Jesus, it it is not only acknowledged virtually by every New Testament book, so the Gospels acknowledge it, the letters of Paul acknowledge it, uh, the, the general epistles acknowledge it, the book of Revelation acknowledges it. Um, if you just look at the Gospels, which your dad, your father-in-law, that is, your dad-in-law did a great job in showing that the, the Gospels are biographical, that they are of the genre of ancient Greco-Roman biography. Well, if you look at the Gospels uh, and you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even if you take the, the Mark and priority view that Mark wrote first, there is still material unique to Matthew, material unique to Luke, the L material, the M material, the, the fourth gospel. And then there's something called Q, the quelle, the source of sayings that some scholars believe Matthew and Luke used. Well, if you take that and you take Paul's testimony and you put them together, what you find is you have this multiple attestation that Jesus died. But outside of the New Testament, you also have testimony from Tacitus, you have testimony from Suetonius, even the Babylonian Talmud mentions the execution of Jesus of Nazareth. And Lucian and Josephus. Lucian and Josephus. Even the, the you know, the testimonium Flavium that, that is usually questioned, yeah. there is no question, Paul Mayer and, and, and other scholars have shown, that, that even though, yes, that testimonium uh, has been tampered by later hands, there was a core, there was a there was a kernel of that statement that did make reference to Jesus' death. Mm-hmm. And, and Josephus even mentions James, the Lord's brother, as well. So when you, when you look at this historical data, uh, first century documents that the Gospels are in Paul's letters, th- there is no doubt that, that Jesus died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and the, the Greco-Roman sources and the, and the Talmud, etc., so there's no reason to deny that. Now, scholars will grant that because there's nothing supernatural about a death. Yeah. We all die. Uh, the death rate is still one per person. Mm-hmm. And so, and so uh, to mention the death of Jesus in the New Testament as a historical fact, I don't know of any conservative scholar, liberal, or even an atheistic scholar that denies that other than the folks 
who deny Jesus never existed, or, or Muslims who, mm. for theological reasons, will reject it because the Quran rejects it. Yeah, and I actually don't know right off of any New Testament scholars that are Muslims. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know any. Yeah. Now, that we could accept that uh, Jesus was crucified, but, you know, maybe maybe he just didn't really die. I mean, there is the swoon theory out there. Jesus was crucified, and he gets put in the tomb, and somehow, like, the cool air of the tomb or the, or, or the spices that Joseph of Arimathea used, that those revived him, so... Yeah, the swoon theory is is actually uh, a very old theory that that um, actually was put to bed a very very long time ago. The fact that uh, that scholars would even try to use it today is, is stupefies me. I mean, um, if if you are familiar with uh, David Frederick Strauss, he yep. he wrote a book called Das Leben Jesu, the the life of Jesus, critically examined way now, back. Now in Strauss was a, a diehard conservative Christian, wasn't he? No, not at all. <laughs> He was a diehard, uh, a diehard liberal critic of the New Testament, very sharp critic, mm-hmm. um, and and he basically uh, he basically paved the way for Rudolf Bultmann and others uh, and their ilk to come along and also question a lot of the details about the historical Jesus. But but what what Strauss did in his book uh, in 1835, um, he basically cr- critiqued the swoon theory. He said, "Look, this." This idea must be abandoned, he said, because it does not adequately explain the high Christology that we find in early Christianity. Mm. How is it, he said, that these early disciples of Jesus, if Jesus had escaped the tomb uh, and and went off and, and met with the disciples, the first thing that they would be saying is, we got to get this guy to a hospital. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, when you consider the flogging and you consider the beating that he received uh, by the Romans, and then of course the spikes through the wrists and the feet, and the gash to the side of his uh, of his rib cage. Um, I mean, Strauss says, how could they look at that and then exalt such a figure to to the status of Son of God and King of Kings and Lord of Lords? He says this would never ever uh, spur the early Christians on to worship Jesus Christ as Lord and King, as Son of God. So uh, the fact that these fellows are still using this, I mean, I think uh, Hugh Sconfield in his novel, The Passover Plot, I think he used a version of that where, where Pontius Pilate and Jesus were buddies and Pontius Pilate um, orchestrated this idea that they would drug Jesus uh, on the cross, they would, uh, he would feign death on the cross, and then later they would get him out of the tomb. And so it's almost like a Shakespearean Romeo and Juliet where – where Juliet is given the 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 the, uh, uh, the drug that uh, heavily sedates, sorry, that Romeo takes, and then of course Juliet later thinks he's dead, but he's not, and then kills kills herself as well. Well, there's something similar going on there, but this this view, uh, Nick, is so so outlandish and so weak. It it doesn't bear up to the weight of evidence. I mean, consider the fact that the tomb of Jesus, the 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 stone that covered the mouth of the tomb, would have taken at least two to three men to roll that huge uh, disc of a stone uh, to to cover the the mouth of the tomb, and Jesus in that type of a state after after receiving these blows and being had had his hands and feet pierced and the side pierced to to move the stone by himself and then and then run through the guards pass by the guards mind you 
Uh, I mean, it, it just, it just, it sounds even more sillier than, than anything that I can imagine. Yeah. I actually had one atheist tell me that uh, he was endorsing a swoon theory and based it on the use of pufferfish poison. Mm. That's, 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 uh, that's an interesting novelty. But, you know, it's, it's quite interesting that when you look at the Greek text of, of the Gospels, particularly if you want to take Mark as the earliest, uh, when Mark says that Jesus gave up the ghost um, or, or expired, the, the word that he uses there, the Greek word that he actually uses there, is literally the word that means to, to expire, to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so when we look at the evidence, I mean, even Pilate, according to Mark's gospel, our Muslim friends like to point out that Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. Uh, and they, they use that as an argument to say, well, aha, you see, uh, there's something fishy going on here. But it goes on to say that he, he asked the centurion to confirm his death. And I could assure you the Romans made sure that those victims were killed, that they were clinically dead, mm-hmm. that they did not survive the cross. And let's point out that the Journal of the American Medical Association agrees with you. Mm, absolutely. Now, you have said, though, that Jesus was buried. And there are some people that will disagree with that. I mean, they might say, well, he was buried, but it sure wasn't in a tomb. I mean, the Romans didn't care about this kind of thing, especially for disgraced criminals. They just take their bodies out and throw them in a common grave and such. That's what happened. Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important to to note that one of the reasons why they tried to, and this is what Ed Atkinson tried to do mm-hmm. in my debate with him. It's funny, he would argue all the other minimal facts mm-hmm. except the burial of Jesus. And yet the burial of Jesus has the same amount of explanatory uh, power that the other points had, which showed an inconsistency why he would accept the others on the same evidence, the weight of evidence, but it was the same weight of evidence that mm. argued the tomb. Anyway, um, because you see, by removing the empty tomb narrative, what they hope to achieve there, Nick, is they realize that the empty tomb narrative, excuse me, the burial narrative yeah. is, is absolutely key and necessary for what follows. Um, well, let me let me say a couple of things. First of all, when they say, well, the Romans really didn't care and they would just throw bodies off and so forth. Yes, that's true. It's a yes and no answer. Um, yes, they would take common criminals, common thieves, and and they would sometimes leave their bodies on the cross for days and let them be uh, eaten by by um, birds of prey and, and, and wild dogs and so forth. However, um, there was an agreement between the Jewish rulers or the Jewish leadership, the high mm-hmm. priest in Israel and Jerusalem, and the emperor. And and part of the agreement was that during festal seasons, during uh, seasons like Passover and, and, and holy Jewish festivals and so forth, there was an agreement that respect and honor was to be shown. And, and, and you will notice that you find that in the Gospel of John where, where the religious leaders go to Pilate, but they will not enter into his residence because it was the Passover and they didn't want to defile themselves. There were certain... Um, there were certain exceptions given by Rome to uh, to the leadership in Jerusalem. There are certain things that they that they had they had exemptions on, and one of those things was that during holy feasts like the Passover, um, it, it they could not leave the body of a criminal uh, hanging on a tree, according to Deuteronomy twenty one, mm-hmm. uh, because this would defile the land, particularly during the the times of of Passover and, and tabernacles and so forth. And so there was permission granted, and that's what you find. Joseph Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, 
goes to Pilate and begs for the body of Jesus, and Pilate grants him his request. Now, what's also important to realize here is that if you read the burial of Jesus, there is nothing, again, um, extraordinary about it. Um, the The practice of, of giving an honorable burial to, uh, to a, a Jew, for instance, is something that is heavily entrenched in Judaism. The most scandalous thing you could do is leave a body unburied, leave it open mm-hmm. to the elements and so forth. And so, and so what Joseph Arimathea did was he, he did something that was considered highly pious in Judaism to give a, a deceased uh, son of Abraham uh, a proper burial. And, and so when you read the, the burial accounts, you will notice that people like Rudolf Bultmann and John A.T. Robinson, uh, again, critics, uh, liberal, would be considered left-wing liberals in, in New Testament scholarship, both Bultmann and Robinson both acknowledge that the burial of Jesus is one of the, the most reliable historical um, stories that we find in the Eastern narratives, uh, passion narratives. And so there's nothing extraordinary about the burial of Jesus. And we have cases in Josephus where Josephus tells us that a number of his friends had been crucified and, and Josephus had, had, had obtained permission to take them down. Mm-hmm. So this is not uh, unusual or, or in, incongruent with what we find uh, in the New Testament Gospels about Jesus' burial. So I would put the onus on them, uh, like Cross and, and others, I would put the onus on them and say, and I've asked Ed Atkinson, where's the evidence? For, back up what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd also point out that uh, the the Jews had a lot of, practices they were allowed to keep like they didn't not have to sacrifice to the emperor they were allowed to sacrifice for the emperor when Pilate brought him these insignias of the of Rome that he wanted to have sent down he had to relent because the Jews protested so much and this was kind of thing like I think the the Jews were granted toleration for us because they weren't old belief and they were respected then even if they weren't believed so you could say the rest of the world this wouldn't be an issue then Palestine, this would be absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. and and exactly, they were they were uh, exempted from uh, placing a, a pinch of incense on the altar to burn before the image of Caesar. The Christians, of course, were not exempt because they were considered yeah. a new thing, a a new movement, and a highly suspicious movement at that. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's no doubt about it that, uh, and we also know that Pontius Pilate. If you look at the Gospel, uh, the Passion narratives, you will notice. That um, that Pilate is acts very very strangely. Um, a lot of people have said that Pilate actually was friends with Jesus, or Pilate felt sorry for Jesus. Not so. Pilate was a uh, a vehement anti-Semite. He hated the Jews, and um, and the reason why you notice Pilate is very nervous or very unusual in trying to get Jesus off the hook is not because he loves Jesus or feels sorry for him. It's because we know from reading Greco-Roman sources, we know that uh, Pilate was under probation by Tiberius. And basically what the emperor had warned Pilate about, because as you just noted, Pilate had done things to stir controversy and, and, and Tiberius got news of this uh, in Rome. And basically we learned that he put Pilate on probation and basically said that if he goofs up, if he causes, if he disrupts the peace in Judea, um, he's going to face the emperor himself. So this explains why, why, if you notice, Pilate is very nervous. 
when when he fails in releasing Jesus and he wants to poke the religious leaders in the eye by doing that, you will notice that uh, the religious leaders say to him, if you let this man go, then you are no friend of Caesar. And that title, friend of Caesar, was an honorary title that was given to certain uh, Roman citizens. Pilate had that, uh, that honorific title. And basically what they're saying is, if you are someone who is honored by the emperor, if you are a friend of Caesar, then uh, you, if you let this man go, then you show yourself to be a traitor because there is no king but Caesar. And so if you look at the gospel accounts, they resonate with, with historical accuracy. It's incredible that people would still have to resort to uh, arguments to question uh, the, the burial of Jesus. I also think that uh, it's my understanding that Sejanus was one of Pilate's big supporters and right. such. And if the timing's accurate, he was just executed, I think, for treason, insubordination, something right. of that sort. And so Pilate could have been thinking, I'm next in line. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, because you see, let's face it, Nick, I mean, growing up, I, I mean, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and, and we were raised to think that Pilate was really sorry about you, feeling bad about Jesus. Yes, Pilate's wife did have a dream in which she thought, uh, do not harm this innocent man, and so forth. But but what we know about Pilate historically um, is is very different, because uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in the, in the Coptic Church, Pilate is actually considered a saint. He's been, mm-hmm. been canonized as a saint in the Coptic Church of Egypt. But the fact of the matter is, uh, Pilate really did did not care for Jesus. He he was simply trying to release him because he wanted to get back at the religious leaders, and he knew that they wanted him dead. He was trying to basically poke them in the eye by letting Jesus go, and then he was pushed up against the wall and and basically told, "You don't comply. Uh, we're we're going to report you back to the emperor." So. Um, Absolutely. Uh, Pilate uh, was, was uh, reluctant to uh, give in to the religious leaders, but once they, they pushed them against the wall, he had no other choice but to have Jesus crucified. Yeah. Now, Bart Ehrman has, uh, in his book, How Jesus Became God, he's argued against the idea that Jesus was buried, and something that, uh, that's noteworthy about this, and Greg Manette said this on my show, I'm sure you're familiar with Greg Manette, he's doing that's his that's PhD. Correct. Yeah, he's doing his PhD on the burial of Jesus, and he said right. that uh, Bart Ehrman does not interact with any scholars who specialize in Jewish burial practices of the time, and that includes Jody Magnus, and that name is significant because she's a Jewish scholar specializing in this, and she teaches at the very university Bart Ehrman teaches at, and she was, in fact, he tells me, hired by him, and yet... Not once has she interacted with in that. Yeah, no, that's it's very sad. It's very sad because, mm-hmm. um, and and absolutely, there's there's a lot of good work that's been done here in Jewish uh, burial practices. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it, it's 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 unfortunate that Bart Ehrman has has basically ignored that wealth, that trove of of scholarship. Mm-hmm. Something I I usually say about reading Bart Ehrman's. Likes that he generally has a habit of ignoring the very best critiques of his position. Mm, yes, yes, indeed, and and that again is is sad because then, I mean, the thing the thing in scholarship uh, is that uh, works are are peer peer reviewed, and 
part of that involves being able to receive criticism and to listen to your critics and so forth. Um, so it's unfortunate that that Bart Ehrman strikes me as, as a very angry person. I think he's mm-hmm. quite bitter. Um, I mean, he tried writing on the problem of evil as well. I think he was outside of his sphere because that's area of yeah. philosophy mm-hmm. and metaphysics. But uh, I think he's I think he is an angry man, and and I think that uh, that um, he's received a lot of accolades from 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 those on the left. He and I think he he he's committed to this worldview, uh, and and that is what is making his book sell. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's unfortunate that uh, that he doesn't engage uh, with his critics. And now there is one part about the burial of Jesus that you said said earlier, and this one part is not. Uh, I'm not playing skeptic here, because this is one part I actually would disagree with you on here, and we can have a little discussion here, and that's that you spoke about Jesus' honorable barrier, where I would say he actually had a dishonorable barrier that Joseph and Nicodemus tried to help improve the honor of it, but the barrier was still shameful in itself. Right, right. Uh, what I meant by honorable, I don't know how you're using the word, what I meant by honorable is that Josephus... Uh, wanted to do right, excuse me, Josephus, Joseph and Marathea mm-hmm. uh, wanted to do right by Jesus, right. Uh, by honoring him. That's what I meant. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, yes, I w- thank you for mentioning Nicodemus there, because Nicodemus uh, only appears in the fourth gospel, in, right. in the, the burial narrative mm-hmm. in the gospel. And and you have this um, this uh, uh, this enormous amount of, of spices that are mentioned there, the weight and so forth. And I think that what John is doing in his gospel is he is, he is showing that, uh, that what you have there is actually a royal burial. That this is these are the type of spices that you would use in a royal funeral. Mm-hmm. I think the whole idea John is communicating is that this is the burial of a king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I I could see that. And still, I think the rest of the world looking and say this mm. is something delusional on their part. This was no king, and he's being shamefully treated and. When right. someone asks me, he says, well, why would Joseph of Arimathea bury the body, especially if a Sanhedrin was united in your decision? I think, I yes. think you're reading... Well, Go ahead. Yeah, well, actually, Nick, it's interesting because that is actually, that's the criterion of embarrassment right mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And that actually argues for the the historicity of, of the burial of Jesus because mm-hmm. that's exactly the point that Raymond Brown uh, mentioned I believe in his commentary uh, on the New Testament is that um, the, the the embarrassing part here is that a member of the very San, Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus to death uh, took it upon himself to bury Jesus, mm-hmm. and the the temptation in in creating a story, a pious story, or a story that would make Jesus look good, would be to have someone like Peter or John or James or one of the apostles. Uh, do the burial of Jesus rather than a Sanhedrin, a Sanhedrist. So the fact that Joseph Arimathea is mentioned as the one who supervised the the burial of Jesus actually has been cited by Bultmann and, and Robinson and Brown and others as actually an argument for the historicity of the account. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I point out people that uh, part of the shame was Jesus was not allowed to be buried by his family or mourned by us. I mean, you see the women coming at a distance there and watching because they're not allowed to get close. And since the Sanhedrin was the one who were, were ones who ultimately were behind the death of Jesus, 
it fell on them to be responsible for burying him. And so Joseph said, hey, here's my chance. I'm going to at least do something. And said, hey, I'll bury him, okay? Right, right. But at, but at the same time, uh, uh, Mark uh, Mark slips in there that Joseph was a secret disciple of mm-hmm. Jesus. So, And right. so remember, Mark's gospel is, is known for its irony. It's filled with yep. irony. And so it's no surprise that Josephus is a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, that condemns Jesus, but at the same time, Mark Mark uh, slips in that little side note and says, "Oh, by the way, he was a secret disciple." Now, sometimes people also talk about the burial of Jesus and say that how it talks about the stone being rolled into place. And we say, "Well, look, most of the tombs in Jerusalem were had square seers, not round ones, so rolled right. does not make sense." Right. Well, the, the the evidence seems to suggest Nick, that there were two types of. Uh, of burial uh, stones there, and there's been a there's been a, an article. I don't know if it was with Jets. I'm not sure if it was uh, Journal of the Evangelical Theological Seminary. Um, uh, sorry, the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Um, there was an article I think that appeared in one of their journals where they talk about the burial practices, and there were two types of um, of um, stones that would guard the mouth of the tomb. They were either circular or disc like. Or they were shaped, uh, they called them, uh, I think uh, the word they used was cork. They, were, they looked like a cork that uh, it was basically a, mm. a boulder of a rock that they yeah. would use to just close the mouth of the grave. And so uh, what these studies suggest is that they used, uh, they used both. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, move on then, assuming that the barrier has been granted. What about the empty tomb? I mean, just because he was buried doesn't mean the tomb was found empty. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, a, a, a body that's been interred and then and then the tomb is found empty. Of course, no one today would conclude that that someone has been risen from the dead. Uh, if a body goes missing from a morgue, nobody concludes that that person has been risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. What I would what I would say is is that the the discovery of the empty tomb, um, you will notice that the reaction to that in all the four gospels was one of fear, uh, was one of unbelief, was one of doubt. Mm-hmm. There is no immediate conclusion made uh, when the women come to the tomb that he's been that he's been raised. They they meet uh, in Mark's gospel uh, a young man at the tomb, in Matthew and Luke. Uh, and then John, you, you have all, they're called angels. Um, but the first reaction, if you notice, is not one of uh, confessing that Jesus was raised from the dead. It, it's one of fear. It's one of doubt uh, and uncertainty. But the empty tomb by itself uh, was not sufficient to, um, to instill uh, faith in the disciples that Jesus was raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. And that is why when the women came to the to the male disciples and told them, they they thought that they were basically imagining things. They 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 didn't believe them and, and so forth. And so the discovery of the empty tomb by itself, and I think that's really important, by itself does not prove a resurrection. Mm-hmm. You, you need more than that, and that's where the postmortem appearances come in as well. But but let us just say for now, Nick, that that the discovery of the empty tomb is so strong. Again, it's multiply attested, just like the death of Jesus and his burial. It's multiply attested, not just in the Gospels, uh, and of course, Acts is part two of the Gospel of Luke, but also in Paul. Uh, in Paul's, uh, that early creed in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, 
Paul cites a creed there that James Dunn has said uh, was circulating within months after the death of Jesus, which is, mm. which is extremely early in classical history or, or in, in first century history. Um, Paul quotes this creed that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. So there, there, is, there seems to be a, a creed there about the, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and then it says, and he was raised the third day, according to the scriptures. And, and therefore, even in Paul's uh, citation of the creed, people say, well, Paul doesn't mention an empty tomb. But, but if we know Paul is a Pharisee, we know one thing about the Pharisees. They believed in bodily resurrection. Mm-hmm. So for Paul to, to cite this creed, which is believed to be pre-Pauline, that is, it came from the disciples prior to Paul, then what that implies is that the the raising of Jesus um, would imply uh, leaving behind an empty tomb because the Pharisees held to a a physical resurrection of the body. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of pushback, and we'll get to the appearances later on. But sure, you know what people were saying was that look, Pharisees may have believed that, but Paul himself didn't. I mean, he says it's a spiritual body, and he compares it to a seed that's planted in the earth, not in a tomb. I mean, right, that doesn't go right. against it. I mean, he, Jesus well, raised a life-giving spirit. Right, right. Well, well, no, because the, the idea of the seed, of course, the seed in the earth is, is simply an analogy of, of the burial of the body mm-hmm. in the grave and so forth. But even the spiritual body that Paul speaks about, um, it's important to realize that the, the what he calls the um, uh, soma pneumaticon there, uh, the the spiritual body is is not a spirit. A, a lot of folks confuse a spiritual body with a spirit that is a, a, a pure spirit like an angel. Um, a spiritual body is still a body. Mm-hmm. And what Paul is distinguishing there is between the natural body, and that is the body that we possess now, and the spiritual body, which will be a resurrected body. So if we ask the question, uh, what did what does a spiritual body look like? Well. The only way we can ascertain that is to ask ourselves, if a spiritual body is a resurrection body, well, who's the only person we know that has a resurrected body? Well, it'd be Jesus. And when we look at Jesus in the Eastern narratives, what what does that body look like? Well, it's tangible. It can be touched. Uh, he could consume food. But at the same time, he could vanish. He could disappear at will and then reappear in the midst of the disciples when the when the doors are closed. And, and what I usually do when folks bring this up, and I know Richard Carey, it's one of his favorite passages that he cites against the physical resurrection, is what I do is I take them to 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul uses the exact same uh, same adjectives, the sukikon and the nomatikon, the, the, the natural and the spiritual, and he applies it to the natural man and the spiritual man. And there he says, the natural man does not receive the things of God, but the spiritual man discerns all things. Well, when I talk to my Jehovah's Witness friends who deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus, they say, well, look, Jesus has a spiritual body, therefore he's a spirit. Well, when Paul says to, to the Corinthians that the, natu- the spiritual man discerns all things, is that a spirit? Is that a, is, is that a spiritual person that he's referring to that is a non-physical entity? Mm-hmm. Well, of course not. When Paul says you are in the spirit and uh, not in the flesh, he doesn't mean you're a spirit. He means you're oriented by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and so what? What I would say is that the idea of a spiritual body is, to Paul, a resurrected body, but it's still bodily. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I also point out First Corinthians ten, where it talks about a spiritual rock in the wilderness. Right. I mean, so, how and many spir- immaterial rocks do we know about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and also, they all drank of the same spiritual rock, and and they had spiritual food. And and so, when it speaks of the spiritual drink and the spiritual rock, uh, food. Well, we know that Paul's referring to the manna, and he's referring to that water that yeah. God provided uh, through the rock. Mm-hmm. So, so obviously, uh, the the spiritual word there is not referring to something that is non-material. Yeah, now, it's a let's, source. Let's get back to the whole empty tomb there. At this point, now one of the things I also be said, and this can tie in a little bit with the appearances, is that you know the whole gospel. Accounts, these are all so contradictory. How many women went? When did they go? What did they do? Who did they talk to? Where did Jesus go to after that? I mean, there are so many contradictions there. Right. Well, what I would say is, is that if they all, if all of these gospel accounts uh, were homogenous and they, mm-hmm. they all said the same thing, uh, then we would have the charge of collusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would say, aha, there's proof of collusion here, therefore we can't trust it. So in one sense that the gospels are condemned and they're not condemned, you know, uh, one, you know, they're yeah. they're guilty on both counts. Uh, that is, mm-hmm. uh, what I w- what I usually argue with that is that is that it's precisely again the incongruity between the sources that actually show their validity. Uh, that's what we would expect from historians. That would that's what we would expect from people who are writing history. We mm-hmm. see that today when journalists write about. Uh, Whatever it may be, the the election of Donald Trump, whatever it may be, not every writer uh, writes the same way. Not every witness to a crime describes the the events uh, exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. I think that what the gospel writers have done is they've collected this this pool of data, and what they've done is they've selected from this pool of data um, elements of the uh, Eastern narratives that are are relevant to their to their audiences. And so, if Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, he's obviously going to use material that is germane to his Jewish audience. Uh, and if Mark's writing to, let's say, a, a, a Roman audience, he's going to use material that's germane to the Roman audience. But but notwithstanding uh, these these uh, alleged contradictions, I don't think they're contradictions at all, but but notwithstanding these uh, these discrepancies, um, this does not negate the, the core, the core uh, elements, and that is we have an empty tomb in all of the narratives. We, we have women coming to the tomb. Uh, we have an appearance, whether it's of, of a one man or two men that are angels. Um, mm-hmm. And then we have the, the appearances of Jesus, at least in, in Matthew, Luke, and John, and, and in, in Mark, um, uh, unless we take the longer ending of Mark as authentic, which majority of scholars do not, uh, those, those post-mortem appearances are anticipated in verse 5, that he will go before you and, and, and see you in Galilee. I find it interesting that whenever the Gospels all agree with one another, it's, oh, they're all copying from Mark, so that's what's going on. Whenever they differ, it's like, see, you can't trust them. Yeah, so so to, it's, again, excuse my language, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Yeah. So either way, you're condemned. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, if they all say the same thing, there's collusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they don't say the same thing, there's contradiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they never never face is the fact that um, there is no there is no de- denying of, of the central facts. I'll give you a quick example when when Polybius and and Livy, uh, two different writers, one is one is a, a Latin writer, Roman writer, the other one's a Greek writer. When Polybius and Livy were talking about uh, uh, Hannibal crossing the Alps, yeah. uh, one of them says, "Well, he he came from the north." The other one says, "He came from the south." 
but historians don't don't throw that up in the air and say, well, I guess we don't know anything about Hannibal crossing the Alps. They say, no, the both Livy and Polybius say he crossed the Alps. Now, whether he came from the north or the south is irrelevant. It's it's not germane to, mm -hmm. to the point here. So historians work with this type of material uh, all the time, and and they don't they don't dismiss uh, the the core the core elements of these documents as true just because uh, some of the details are, are not the same. I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest is Dr. Tony Costa. We're talking about the resurrection. But if you're here next week, uh, we're going to be talking about a topic that so many young people love to talk about, and so many of us older people don't mind talking about quite as much, too. And that's going to be a question of, you know, everyone out there loves sex. Why should we wait? And that's the question a lot of young people have. And we're going to have Brian Sands on. The name of his book is Everyone Loves Sex, So Why Wait? Making a case about why one should wait until they get married before they engage in sex. So if that's a topic that's interesting to you, and it should be, then come back here next week and we'll have a good discussion about it. But let's get back to Dr. Costa and talking about the burial of Jesus and the empty tomb. You know, something that I find interesting also is when someone will tell me that well, look, the accounts of the women coming, it doesn't even make sense. The women wouldn't be have been given access to the tomb or anything like that. And I, I'm sort of thinking, have you, have you ever been married before? <laughs> I mean, do, do you know that sometimes women and men as well do things that don't make sense? <laughs> Very good point. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, again, here's, here's the criterion of embarrassment again popping up its head, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that is what we do know uh, about the status of women in the first century, at least in terms of Judaism, was that uh, Josephus tells us that women um, were not to be trusted as witnesses in, in courts of law, and uh, there was a saying among the rabbis that let the Torah burn before it falls into the hands of a woman, mm -hmm. uh, and, and rabbinic Judaism has, had a lot of, has said a lot of nasty things about women and the place of women and so forth, very different than the way Jesus viewed women and how he treated them. And no surprise that he had many of his followers were also female. Um, and and when we look at the discovery of the empty tomb, notice it says that, it, that the women went to the tomb. Some say, well, it was still dark. Others say a dawn and so forth. They're obviously doing this undercover. They're obviously doing this. They don't want to be spotted. They don't want to be caught. And the fact that it was the women who were the first witnesses uh, to the empty tomb, I think, is telling, um, because this would have been one way that one way to shoot yourself in the foot in the foot in the first century was to cite women as witnesses to make a case. And what you would have what you would have expected, and this is what you find, for example, in the Gospel of Peter, uh, where you have this this mass crowd outside the tomb, including the disciples and so forth. Um, what you find is that 
the pious story would have had the male disciples discover the empty tomb, like Peter or James or John or Philip or mm-hmm. something like that. But instead, you have these these women uh, who were there at the death of Jesus. And mind you, Luke tells us that they actually witnessed his burial at the end of Luke 23. It says that the women saw the place where they laid him and so forth. So the women uh, were were there uh, at, at his interment. Um, and yet, they are the ones who come early Sunday morning, presumably to to finish up the funeral honorary rites, um, and they go there, and they're the ones who discovered the empty tomb. They are the first ones to receive the testimony uh, from the angelic figure that Jesus was risen from the dead, and they're told to go to to the male disciples, uh, Peter in particular, and to tell them that he's no longer here. So, just from a historical point of view, a, a historical socio-historical point of view, the women discovering the tomb is actually a highly embarrassing account. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the women just went to the wrong tomb. Yeah, yeah. Curse of Blake uh, suggested that in, in one of his books, that, that they went to the wrong tomb. But, but I mean, certainly, uh, we're not talking about huge cemeteries here. We're talking about a garden tomb. Uh, and we're talking about a place that was known to both uh, – the uh, the uh, the enemies of Christianity and 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 the women um, and Joseph of Mathia, of course, it was his own tomb, um, and so you would think that eventually they would have found it. I mean, when the disciples started preaching, Jesus was raised from the dead, and in the book of Acts chapter two, Peter even mentions the the tomb of Jesus in comparison with the tomb of David, and says how our da- our father David is still still lies in his tomb and so forth. Presumably showing that the tomb of Jesus is is obviously empty, um, wouldn't it be advantageous uh, for the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and the religious authorities? Wouldn't it have been advantageous for them to finally find the tomb of Jesus and produce the body and basically stop the whole Christian movement right there, dead in its tracks? Well, absolutely. But to argue that they went to the wrong tomb, I mean, it is it is just as weak as the swoon theory. Because, I mean, eventually, wouldn't they have found it? And eventually, wouldn't the religious leaders have wanted to produce the body and thereby destroying the Christian message? Absolutely. Well, maybe they couldn't produce the body because the disciples stole the body. Yeah, yeah, that's another one, the the conspiracy theory. And it's actually, that is the oldest rival theory, Nick, that we have. Mm -hmm. That was the original, the first one. And Matthew mentions it in Matthew 27 and in the uh, what's been known as the conspiracy theory, the the the, the theft theory, and uh, this is the body snatcher theory, I call it. And uh, what the, what Matthew tells us, of course, is that uh, when the tomb was discovered empty, uh, the religious leaders bribed the guards um, and told them that uh, you know here's money, uh, just say that as you were asleep, the disciples came in the night and stole the body. And uh, which is kind of ironic and and humorous at the same time, considering the fact that how do you know they did that if you were asleep? Uh, And how do you know it was the disciples if you were sleeping? Um, It's kind of hard to tell when you're asleep what's going on around you. So uh, this is the original story that started the whole thing. But the problem with that, Nick, is it causes more problems than solutions. And that is, uh, number one, uh, why would the disciples of Jesus conspire to do that? Why would they even want to come up with a, a theft of the body from the tomb, and then um, suffer, greatly suffer for the sake of this lie that they made up. And then, uh, according to, to church tradition, many of these guys 
ended up dying uh, as martyrs uh, with the confession that Jesus was Lord and that he was raised from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, Nick, but I definitely will not lay down my life for a lie. If I know yeah. something is a manifest lie, I'm not going to die for that. Mm. But if I am called to stand up and, and, and fight for my country, and as our, our soldiers, our noble military men have done and women, um, they will die for their country because they believe it is, it's a noble and true cause. But for the disciples to engineer this resurrection hoax and make it up uh, and then die for it, uh, it just sounds so outlandish and something so so counterintuitive to, to human reason. If anyone's wanting some more information on the martyrdoms of the apostles, uh, go look in our show archives. I think it was earlier this year we had Sean McDowell on who did his PhD mm. on that topic, so you can get some more information there. But maybe the, uh, the Jews or the Romans told the body. Uh, can you repeat that, Nick? Maybe the Jews or Romans told the body. Yeah, but then again, uh, to to quell the the Christian movement, which was turning the world upside down, um, they would have produced the body instantly just to stop the Christian movement. Because what was their driving force was the confession that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that is what was threatening the the Jewish leadership, and eventually that that is what was threatening uh, the 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 so called Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, as Christianity was spreading throughout the empire. But but one thing that, I don't know if this was one of the questions you were going to ask, uh, Nick, but well, one of the things that the critics usually throw up is that, uh, is that uh, well, that, that the idea of the guards falling asleep, well, if, if the Roman guards fell asleep on duty, the, the consequences would be death. Yeah. But here's the interesting thing. Here's the interesting thing. Matthew doesn't tell us that it were, they were Roman guards. He doesn't mm-hmm. tell us that. There were Jewish guards as well. And, mm-hmm. and we do know from Josephus that the temple had uh, temple police. And these were Jewish uh, police uh, that that uh, were authorized to keep the peace in in the temple in Jerusalem, and most likely uh, these guards uh, would have been Jewish guards. Uh, and may, may, it, the reason why I'm saying that is because under Roman law, a soldier that that falls asleep on duty, uh, the penalty was was death. Uh, and so, it, it, so I'm just uh, I'm just saying here that uh, it's very possible that the guards who are mentioned there were Jewish guards. You know, but, you know, you said they could produce the body, but, you know, the whole movement didn't start until 50 days later. I mean, the body right. would have been unrecognizable by then, wouldn't it? Right, right. Well, I, I, would, I, would, I would dispute that. I mean, there, that's, that's assuming that, uh, that the body had decomposed very, very rapidly. Uh, I mean, um, I think that there, was, there would still be similarities, that, uh, similarities in the facial structure that, uh, that people could still make. So I think it's I don't think it's a very strong argument. I think there have been bodies that have been found months later and they're still recognizable. Well, maybe it was uh, people like necromancers and such who stole the body because I mean the body parts of holy men was often used in magical incantations and such. Right, right. And that of course is what leads us to the next part and that is if that was the case then that would be difficult to sustain the post-mortem appearances because when Jesus appeared to the disciples, uh, he, he offered up his body to be touched. And, and so there was a tangible proof there uh, that, that his body could be seen. So I don't think Jesus, was, didn't, I don't think Jesus appeared with uh, missing limbs. <laughs> yeah, and also we could add in that uh, t- doing all the work, including the equipment and tools needed to break into a Jerusalem tomb, would have been something causing quite for ruckus in the city. Oh, of and, and, of course, also at these necromancers. They didn't usually take the whole body. They just took what well, they needed. 
That's right. That's right. And so, it, it, you know, we don't find Jesus appearing with, with a thumb missing or a hand missing. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. okay. Now, let, let's get to the appearances here. I mean, this is one of the most important parts there is. I mean, are the appearances really accepted by, by even non-Christian critical scholars? Absolutely. Uh, even uh, Bart Ehrman has has openly admitted that uh, that the the postmortem appearances of Jesus, the disciples definitely uh, experienced uh, appearances of Jesus alive again. Uh, mm-hmm. Not just old, excuse me, not just Bart Ehrman, but you look at someone like Gerd Ludemann. Uh, Gerd Ludemann, um, a German scholar, uh, very uh, again, very very leftist uh, in his theology and and. And belief in the New Testament as God's word and so forth. Uh, Gerd Ludemann said there is no doubt that the disciples experienced uh, uh, appearances of Jesus as yep. when he appeared to them. And we can mention Paula Fredrickson as well. Uh, she also has said the same thing. Virtually all the scholars that I've looked at, uh, without exception, uh, with maybe the exception of Robert Price and others, uh, yep. would argue that Jesus, uh, that the appearances of Jesus were definitely uh, experienced by the disciples. Yeah, so, so once again, the mythicists are the exception, and Robert Price has even tried to argue that the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 is an interpolation. He hasn't had much luck with that one. No, no, no and yeah, I, I, yeah exactly. It's a, it's a very strong text. It's very early. The creed itself is, as Dunn said, within months, uh, and James, uh, excuse me, Gerd Ludemann says that it's no later than five years after the death of Jesus. It can't be beyond five years. Uh, and so when we look at the postmortem appearances, um, but just because they acknowledge that there were postmortem appearances right. uh, is, is, is one thing. They will acknowledge that that yeah. happened. Now the question is, do they believe that that was really Jesus? Well, some would say, well, uh, it was probably hallucinatory. It was really, they thought they saw Jesus. Did they think they saw him? Absolutely. The question is, was it really Jesus? Now, some people say that Paul, his appearance, he didn't physically see Jesus. He regularly describes it as a vision instead. Right. So this it doesn't doesn't this present a problem. Well, um, no, I, I don't. I don't think it. I don't think it presents a problem because um, if if we read. If we read his uh, list of witnesses in First mm-hmm. Corinthians fifteen, it, it's very clear that he is he is mentioning there that he he, he Paul is uh, he's he's kind of out of place. He he talks about being born out of due time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Greek word there could mean uh, something like a miscarriage. Um, he was not a, a Johnny come lately. He was like I, he was a Paul come lately, mm-hmm. a Pauly come lately, and and so. What, what Paul is trying to do there in the list of witnesses, and John Dominic Crossan has, has written on this as well, Dominic Crossan has argued that what Paul is doing there in trying to list all of these witnesses and then putting himself last, he is saying that he had the very same experience that they had. In other words, what Paul encountered was an appearance, now post-ascension, mind you, post-ascension, mm-hmm. but it was appearance of the risen Jesus to Paul. And Paul points out that he was the last to see that appearance, mm-hmm. uh, the risen appearance. Because Jesus did appear, according to the New Testament, there were visionary appearances later of Jesus. Uh, John, in the book of Revelation, sees him uh, in, in the Isle of Patmos. He, he's in the Spirit and the Lord's Day. He sees the risen Jesus. But this is clearly a vision. There's, there's eyes of fire. There's a sword that comes out of his mouth and so forth. 
But in terms of the last witness to the resurrection or the resurrected Jesus, Paul clearly places himself as the terminus. He is the end, uh, the last of the witnesses. And therefore, he is uh, qualified to be an apostle because he was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. Yeah, but if you say that, that Paul was like Verus, and that presents the problem, if you're going to say, well, if Paul had a visionary experience, then that means the other disciples probably had a visionary experience. Also, it wasn't Jesus physically appearing, they just had a vision. Like, you could say you go to church and we feel the presence right. of Jesus and stuff. Right, right. Yeah, the, the, the gospel accounts are very clear on this, and I, I think mm-hmm. even First John uh, chapter 1, the first epistle of John, he he talks about how this word of life, we have seen him, we've touched him, we've heard. He uses the, the senses, the, the, the physical senses to describe this incarnate one. And I think if we look at the gospel accounts, it's very, very clear in the narratives, the Eastern narratives, that this was a real appearance, that this was a tangible appearance. Uh, a, visionary, uh, a, a visionary experience would not account for someone being, a, being able to be touched, someone that could consume food, someone that could, uh, someone that could be handled and so forth. So... I think that to claim that it was just, oh, it's just a subjective vision, uh, flies in the face of, of, of the Eastern narratives that clearly show that, that this was a, a veridical appearance, that Jesus really was there and that he mm. was tangible. Yeah, but someone could say, well, yeah, that's the Gospels. The Gospels will decide to embellish things and make things more extraordinary to a bodily resurrection. Paul, though, Paul doesn't have physical experiences. He has visionary experiences. Right, right. Well, see, yeah, this this is an argument where they, they try to pit Paul against the Gospels, and and this becomes a source criticism argument. Mm-hmm. But but there's nothing in the Gospels. I mean, the material that we find in the Gospels, um, um, if we look at uh, the Gospel of Mark, the, the earliest, um, the earliest uh, Gospel account, while we don't have the appearances of Jesus— unless the longer ending is authentic, which I don't think it is. Um, the Gospel of Mark uh, is also believed to, to, to rest on uh, a much older tradition, and, and some scholars refer to this as the pre-Mark and Passion narrative. And in this pre-Mark and Passion narrative, we also have the, the discovery of the empty tomb, and, and it's usually dated to, to the 50s, uh, the 50s AD. So again, the, the onus is on those who make the remarks that know that this stuff was embellished. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, the onus is on them to prove that. I, I don't find that argument to be uh, to be convincing. Um, the the material in the Gospels, I, I don't see any signs of embellishment. And if we do take Paul's position as as a Pharisee, what we do know about the Pharisees about resurrection, at least, is that they believe that it was going to be a physical resurrection of the body. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I would put the onus on those uh, on those who make the claim. Mm-hmm. Well, we've already talked about this some, but couldn't this just be, you know, like grief hallucinations that were had by the apostles? Yeah, well, of course, grief hallucinations is, is something that has been studied in psychology. and um, But the problem with grief hallucinations is that while they can happen, and, and they do happen, um, number one, they don't explain an empty tomb. They don't explain the absence of the body in the grave. Um and secondly, um, the the idea that we have uh, cases where Jesus is seen by by uh, uh, a, a large number of people, whether it's the five hundred uh, brethren that Paul mentions in First Corinthians fifteen, or when he appears to James and the apostles, or Peter and the eleven, and so forth, or the rest of the apostles, uh, I can grant uh, individual hallucinations, but 
But for 500 people to, to hallucinate the same thing at the same time, I think is, is highly questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I grant hallucinations due to grief. I, I, I know that they happen. But usually when we, can, when we see this, these are individuals who subjectively experience these things. They, they experience these things individually. But the gospel accounts don't just have individual witnesses to the resurrection. They also have groups of people who saw Jesus. And then, of course, the, the 500 that the Apostle Paul mentions. I'd like to, uh, before we go further, I remind everyone you're listening to the People Barbers podcast. Everything we do here is supported by people like you, and this is an operation that it's me and I've got a sound guy who does a lot of the sound equipment, does it all volunteer basis, and and, uh, my ministry partner puts this up on YouTube, again, all volunteer and such. And so, once it's behind the mic, it's me doing all the work here. Yeah. My, my my friends who help me out there in Valuebar, I, I think the world of them. But doing the reading, asking questions and such, and all the research and preparation, that's me. So if you'd like to help me be, to be able to do this much more easier and such, go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and you'll find a link there. Under Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries, you click in it, and you get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And, uh, and might I add that after this past Monday, my in-laws for seven years, Ali and I celebrated our seventh wedding anniversary Monday, and she was very happy of all I was able to do for her. And I was able to do it by way thanks to a friend who made a generous donation and said use it for something fun. And anyway, you go to Risen Jesus, you make your donation, and then you get in touch with Mike or Debbie or me or Allie, and you say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And it will be made sure that we get that donation, and it is tax deductible. You can also buy books that I've either written or co-written. Written is a, a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. Co-written or uh, books like Defining Inerrancy, God and Natural Disasters, or Groundless, there was a verse there. And then, guys, uh, like I said, we just got done celebrating our anniversary, now Allie's got a condition that she can't wear jewelry for a long time, but she does still put on her wedding ring at times, like when we go in public, but she doesn't wear it permanently because of this condition. But for the most part, women love jewelry. I'm not sure if you notice this, but they do. You can go to the jewelry store we have and get in touch with me if you want to know how to do it. And it's Premier Jewels. My friend Lena Clester handles that. And you purchase an item, 25% of what you purchase goes to Deeper Waters. And so guys, like I like to tell you, you can go and you can buy something. And you can buy something for your lady to make up that recent screw-up that I know you did. 
or you can buy some for your lady to make up for that screw up that I know you're going to make in the future. And if you can't do this, I mean, try going on iTunes and leaving a positive review or get in touch with me and say, hey, uh, I like your show and maybe even say, would you like to do this topic? Would you like to have this person on? I I'm very open to that kind of thing. I, I don't, I won't always say yes, but I'm open to it. Now, uh, Dr. Costa, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Um, well, actually, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Nick. And, and, bef and before I, I proceed, I just uh, wanted to congratulate you, give you my congratulations as well on your wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Congratulate um, Allie. She's the one who's put up with me for seven years about <laughs> killing me somehow. <laughs> well, please do convey my congratulations to your lovely wife. Mm -hmm. um, what uh, I'm actually going to be heading uh, the end of August, I'm actually going to be heading to, um, to Cambodia mm. to train pastors there. Uh, for a week, I'm going through uh, Paul Washer's ministry, Heart Cry, mm -hmm. and uh, so I'll be there at the end, uh, towards the end of August for a week. And so uh, I do have a, a GoFundMe page if they would like to, uh, if they'd like to support my my trip to Cambodia and, and back. Um, the information is there. If they are interested, I don't have the link in front of me right now, Nick. But uh, if they're interested, they could always email me mm -hmm. at tmcos at rogers.com that's t-m-c-o-s at rogers.com and i could direct them to the link and i encourage everyone to do that now let's get uh, back to the show we're talking about the eye the appearances and such and you mentioned the group appearances and such but geez dr costa we have Marian apparitions that appear to groups. We have UFOs that are said to appear to groups. Seen. Why should we think there's anything there? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that the the, the Marian apparitions. I think we we have to uh, we have to proceed uh, proceed with caution. Uh, coming from a Portuguese background, um, we uh, we are uh, the Portuguese take great pride in in the appearance, the alleged appearance of the Virgin Mary in Portugal. At Fatima, Our Lady of Fatima, as they refer to it, yeah. uh, the the problem with that is there's there's a lot of holes in that story. In fact, there's a there's a Roman Catholic priest right now who's quite controversial who has called the whole thing into question and has basically argued that 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 the, the thing was actually a perpetrated hoax that these that uh, these uh, young children uh, were making. Mm -hmm. One of them in particular was known for making up stories uh, as as a teenager. So the the issue here is um, the question about the the dancing of the sun that apparently happened in Portugal uh, in nineteen I believe nineteen seventeen or so around there. Um, there's a lot of holes in that story. There just there's a lot of questions that still remain. Uh, and so uh, to to argue that the Marian apparitions were seen by many, the problem is the story itself does not add up. There's serious questions uh, about what happened. Um, and so I would not compare it to what we find uh, in in the New Testament. It's a it's one thing to claim that somebody uh, uh, died, was buried, and was raised again, and then that another claim saying that uh, there was a, a Marian apparition somewhere. We have no physical evidence of this. We're just taking it on what what some people have said. And upon closer inspection, I think that the the accounts are 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 extraordinarily problematic. What about UFOs? I think the same thing would apply. There's, there's a lot of, uh, as you know, there's, this is a, an area, there's a lot of hoaxes in the area of UFOs. 
I'm not denying that there is a supernatural element. I, I do believe that there is a a supernatural element to the to the so-called uh, UFO phenomena. I think personally that it's demonic, mm-hmm. it's diabolical. Um, but again, it's uh, if these things really exist and and these entities, uh, these ultra dimensional uh, dimensional entities exist, and they can appear, uh, I wouldn't doubt that that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the resurrection of Jesus uh, is 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 something very different. I think it's it's something very unique. It's something that that there's there's histor- historical criteria. There's there's uh, the idea of the body of Jesus, the the disappearance of the body from the tomb, the the the, the tangibility of that body, and so forth. I think I think we're dealing with something different. Mm-hmm. Well. When we look at the 500, though, I mean, we don't know any names or anything about these people. And how could anyone go and ask who they are? They're not even named in the text. Yeah, yeah, they're not they're not named in the text. Uh, Paul cites these 500 brethren uh, and, and basically says that some of them are alive, though many of them have fallen asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really see scholars that, uh, I mean... Paul does not mention the women in 1 Corinthians 15 in that list. He only mentions uh, male mm-hmm. figures, and I think that's significant as well. I think that's part of the issue is that uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is is dealing with uh, a, a Greek audience that uh, that is questioning the resurrection. If he brought the women into that list, I think it would it, it would argue against him in, in that particular case. But um, I think that the the appearance to the 500 is something that uh, most New Testament scholars would say that Paul received as well from the early disciples. It's, it's not explicitly mentioned in the New Testament Gospels, although I think that if, if there was such an appearance to 500, it would most likely have been in the Galilee, up in the north, uh, on the mountainside that, that Matthew mentions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, um, we're, we're, not, we're not in a position to say that uh, who are these people? Well, obviously... We don't know who they are, but I think it's pretty clear that that Paul was familiar with with this with this account and about these these witnesses to the resurrection. Uh, and I think that by the very fact that Paul says, "Look, some of them have fallen asleep, but but some of them uh, are are still around." Um, I think it was Gary Habermas who points out that there'd be no reason for Paul to even say that unless the argument w- was being made that they're still around to to, to testify mm-hmm. uh, to this event. But no, we don't know who they are. But, but why Paul would even mention this? I mean, uh, what point would he have after he just mentioned the male disciples? He mentioned uh, James and the apostles. He mentioned Cephas, that is Peter. And then he mentions uh, this group of 500 people. Uh, I, 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 I rarely find scholars who think that Paul just made that number out of thin air. Yeah, but, you know, eyewitness testimony, it's not always very reliable. Yeah, but it's the only it's it's the only testimony we have, and and there's nothing that uh, it's 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 again the old uh, argument that people quote David Hume from that extraordinary evidence uh, uh, requires extraordinary evidence. Uh, sorry, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Uh, well, I don't think that's necessarily the case here, and I don't think it's true. I, I mean. I mean, to to show that the resurrection of Jesus is true would not require extraordinary evidence. All you would have to show, as Dr. William Craig has argued, is that um, they witnessed Jesus alive, and and he he preached, and he he did wondrous things, and and then he died, mm-hmm. and then 
they witnessed him alive again. Uh, I mean, to witness someone who, who died and, and, and was raised from the dead, to, to witness that person alive again is not necessarily extraordinary in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, the event would be, definitely. But, um, but eyewitness testimony is, is all we've got. It's what we use in our justice system. It's, it's what we use in our journalism. It's what we use in, in writing history. Uh, and, and, and so, um, and so if, if we just say that eyewitness testimony is unreliable, well, then in that case, if we, if we take that to its logical conclusion, then we have just called all of history into question. We might as well close down our history departments because we really don't know if anything these guys, the ancients have said is true. Yeah. Uh, so again, if we take the criteria of, of dissimilarity, the criteria of embarrassment, multiple attestation, I think we have a good case that, uh, that uh, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus lies on, on pretty good ground. Yeah, I was listening to Matt Dillahunty do a review of his debate with my father-in-law, Michael Kona, right. today, and he did say that, well, you know, they interviewed people a year and then I think three years after 9-11 took place, and their memories were quite different. And right. I, I'm saying, thinking, well, how, how do you, different do you think it would be if they interviewed, say, a wife who lost her husband on 9-11? Right. Where do their memories different? Because if you're talking about people in the health thing, I mean, they'd say it's tragic, but it didn't really impact their lives. Of course, right. their memory's not going to be as good. But if you talk about someone who lost a spouse on 9-11, their memory's going to be pretty good. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm sure you can as well, but I'm, I can remember uh, people who were very close to me who, who died a long time ago, mm -hmm. and I could still recall their words. I can still recall uh, very, uh, very mm -hmm. important uh, events in, in my life with that person that mm -hmm. I could recall with immediate accuracy. I could recall their, their tone of voice. I can recall where they said it and so forth. So you're <laughs> absolutely right, Nick. Uh, there's a difference between somebody, you know, standing in one of the streets of New York City and, and recounting the events of 9-11, it's something very different to someone who, who's lost someone very close to them. Yeah, I, I think I'd also use the example of, a, could you remember, say, the weather where you were living on July 24th, 2010, wherever it was? Well, chances are you probably couldn't remember the weather where that right. day. If you ask me, I say, yeah, I remember. If that was my wedding day, I remember what was going on that day. Right, right. And I remember where I was when 9-11 happened, when yeah. I heard the news. Yeah, our, so do I. Most people would remember, for example, I guess our parents and, uh, they, and grandparents, they would remember uh, where they were when, when they heard the news that JFK, that, uh, JFK was, uh, was assassinated yeah. in, in, uh, in Texas. And, and, or the news that uh, when Walter Cronkite came on and, and declared that uh, JFK had passed away. Uh, people can remember where they were, and, and, and they remember that day as if it was yesterday. Yeah. Now, we did look at this a bit earlier, but, I mean, Dr. Carlson, don't you know that uh, all the Christians did was they stole this kind of idea from pagan deities like Mithras and Horus and Dionysus and all these others, that everyone had a dying and rising God, and the Christians just made one up for themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's that's become a very, a very common uh, assertion today. The only problem with that view is that a lot of these so-called myths are, mm -hmm. are post-Christian. They come after uh, Christianity has been established already. And um, it seems that what, what has been going on here is that the copying actually has gone the other way around. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the, the story of, uh, for example, the, 
uh, what's her name? Apollinaris, I believe it was. Yeah. Uh, Apollonius uh, Tayana. Apollonius Tayana, that's right. Yeah. If you look at, at his stories, uh, a lot of them look like they were taken right out of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and they're, and they're post Christian. And the other problem here, too, is that the belief in resurrection among the, the Jews um, was a belief in, in resurrection of the body. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the pagans did not have a belief in, in the resurrection of the body. One thing about Greco-Roman religion was that once you died, um, you went to Hades and, and, and there was no return. Other, other than the myths of Hercules going down into Hades and rescuing uh, you know his his lover and so forth, mm-hmm. but but the the idea in the Greco Roman world was once you died that that's it you, you you would go into Hades and 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 you would dwell there. Even the Egyptians, uh, even though they they mummified their pharaohs and 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 special uh, dignitaries and so forth, they did not believe in a resurrection. the The idea of the dying and rising god myth is really the personification of the crop cycles. It's an agricultural um, symbol of of fall and spring or the autumn and the spring where where uh, where the trees and vegetation die in the fall and then they're 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 resurrected or they return uh, in the spring raymond brown made a very good point when he was uh, discussing this in his book the the bodily resurrection and virgin birth of jesus i believe it's called and uh, what raymond brown does is he says if you look at the resurrection of jesus um it, it makes no sense to compare it to these so-called dying and rising gods, which were, were simply agricultural. Um, the resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus happened in the springtime, in the Passover, um, because there was a three-day lapse there between the two events, the death and resurrection. The, the Greco-Roman uh, dying and rising god myths, we're, we're talking about the, 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 the agricultural cycle uh, of death and, and, and return to life and so forth. And again, again, this is post post Christianity, just like Mithraism. Mithraism is post Christian, and 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 some folks who try to argue that that Mithra, the birth of Mithra, was the copy of Jesus' birth, virgin birth is a copy from Mithraism, is is absolutely silly because the the myths of Mithraism, the myth says that Mithra uh, sprang out of a rock, uh, fully formed. He was he, he came out of a rock as as a as a young man. Now, uh, now, Dr. Costa, that yes. rock did not have sexual relations with anyone, so that's a virgin birth right there. That, that's right, that's right. It was a virgin rock. That's right. It was a, as a virgin white rock. But uh, but the idea is that that he springs out of this rock. Well, well why does he do that? Well, because it's, it's connecting him with nature. Uh, and that's what the pagan the pagan worldview was. Everything is is interlocked with nature. The the, the nature and the divine are are interchangeable. So uh, those who make these arguments, once again, uh, I believe it was uh, in in the uh, the book, uh, the the Great Standard Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. Uh, there's there's a great, I think it was Dunn who made the statement that 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 the genre of myth uh, cannot be applied to to the life of Jesus. That is, in, in terms of of his Jewish life. There is nothing mythical or, or anything related to paganism. The, the early disciples of Jesus were, were Jews, uh, as Jesus was. Uh, his immediate followers were all Jews. They, they found paganism to be repugnant. Um, they, they were dedicated to the Torah. They were dedicated to the one God, Yahweh. And for them to, to borrow uh, from paganism would, would, is, is something that would have been absolutely reprehensible to them. They eschewed paganism. They eschewed the gods of Rome and, and Greece and, and all the other gods. 
and and that was precisely the reason why they came under the the persecution that they did was because they refused to acknowledge uh, Caesar as Lord, uh, as a rival to to Jesus Christ as King and Lord. Yeah, I kind of wish I could just go to all these people who argue this kind of thing on Facebook and say, if you see it in a meme, be very <laughs> suspicious of it and realize that just because someone has a blog or a website or a show, and that includes me, even I don't believe myself, it doesn't mean they're right. Go back and check the best sources. Exactly. Exactly. And so when people watch Zeitgeist uh, mm -hmm. and, and they, they come to the conclusion that that uh, the life of Jesus was simply the copy of, of Horus and Horus was baptized uh, and that Horus had 12 disciples and, and, and really these, these really, really silly assertions that are made uh, that, have, that have no basis in reality. There are no footnotes, no endnotes, there's no source material. Uh, so a lot of stuff is, is thrown out there. And, and the other problem is the moment someone sees a similarity between, let's say, well, the story of Jesus and then, well, we got this myth over here. The moment they see a similarity, they, they assume that they confuse similarity for sameness. And I think it was Samuel Sandmel, a, a great scholar who, who runs, once wrote a, a great article uh, called uh, Parallelomania. And, and he talked about how scholars sometimes fall into this trap of parallelomania, where, where they see parallels between various documents, and then they assume that they all come from the same source. And, and that's the problem is, listen, similarity, I mean, an elephant and, and, and I, I and an elephant, we both have ears, but just because we both have ears doesn't mean that I'm an elephant. Mm -hmm. So similarity does not mean sameness. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course, you're going to find the tension between light and darkness in the ancient world. Of course, you're going to find the, the tension between chaos and order and so forth that, that of course, the Hebrews also saw and, and the Canaanites also saw. But to, to conclude that, that they're, they, they, they're talking about the same thing or they, they get this from the very same source uh, is fallacious. Well, Dr. Costa, there are a lot of strange beliefs that rise up and last a long time like Christianity did. I mean, Mormonism, for instance, has thrived here in America and there were eyewitnesses there and some of them said they saw the golden plates and such. So why not be a Mormon then? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there the witnesses of the, of the Book of Mormon. Uh, for instance, there's three of them mentioned uh, in in the the preface uh, of the Book of Mormon. If you look at these three witnesses, David Whitmer and and, and others, um, all these three guys uh, later uh, renounced Mormonism. <laughs> this is an embarrassing part of Mormon history. The three witnesses of the Book of Mormon later renounced Joseph Smith as a prophet and Mormonist and and basically left. Um, Again, uh, you don't see the disciples of Jesus doing that. The other issue is the plates, the so-called golden plates that Joseph Smith uh, retrieved uh, from the Hill Cumorah in, in upstate New York. Um, when, when the witnesses uh, came forward and, and later wrote about the, their experience about seeing the golden plates, what they later said was very different. What they said was, we saw it, we never actually touched them, he said, they said, that is, they said, we saw it with the eye of faith. Yeah. Now, the eye of faith, as you know, Nick, uh, is very different than actually seeing something yeah. with your eyes. And so the eye of faith is what you and I today have in terms of the risen Jesus. Uh, blessed are those who have not seen and believed. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so you and I can, can see the Lord with the eye of faith, but Thomas and the others saw him directly. Mm -hmm. so, so Mormonism, the, the very witnesses that the Mormons point to, 
later apostatized from Mormonism, and the so-called witnesses to the golden plates actually testified they never actually saw the plates, but they only saw them with the eye of faith. So mm-hmm. as you could see, the, the, and, and remind you, mind you, Mormonism is more recent in our history than early Christianity. I mean, we're, Mormonism is, we're looking at 1830, uh, and, and that is relatively very recent in our history, mm-hmm. and, and it rests on very shaky ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, whereas Christianity 2,000 years ago, we have a lot more solid uh, ground to rest on than we do on Mormonism. And I may also add, um, even if you look at Islam, uh, we have more information on Jesus, early information, than we have for Muhammad. In fact, uh, Muhammad's biography, his earliest biography, is 150 years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so when you look at the Gospels, which are a couple of decades after Jesus, the Gospels are much earlier in their, in their, uh, in their time frame than, than Muhammad's biography. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, something that we can say also, by the way, I'd like to know that uh, if you'd like a little bit more information on these things that we're just touching a little bit on, I did interview Joe Marva here on the zeitgeist idea of pagan copycats. He's doing his PhD on this, might be done with it already by now. And sometime, the last time I interviewed Rob Bowman on the show, we talked about Joseph Smith and his seer stone. We talked a whole lot about the Mormon appearance claims. So if you're wanting more on that, I urge you to go back to those episodes. But um, Dr. Costa, when you look back at the apostles of time, I mean, isn't it obvious they were just having cognitive dissonance? Um, well, I mean, some, some have tried to argue that uh, psychologically. And, and what I find is that I have a number of friends who, who are specialists in psychology and, and psychiatry and so forth, and it is a very complex, a complex subject. I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to analyze uh, someone today uh, mm. in front of you. Mm. Uh, I think it's much more difficult to assess them psychologically from 2,000 years ago. Yeah. And some of the arguments that they use, you'll hear people say, well, Peter was, so, uh, Peter was just so overwhelmed with, uh, with grief that, that Peter just uh, hallucinated Jesus alive again. Um, and, and, but then they will apply the same thing to the Apostle Paul. But, mm-hmm. but what we know about Saul of Tarsus is, is Saul of Tarsus was bent on destroying the Christian movement. He was mm-hmm. bent on destroying uh, um, everything related to, to the Christian movement. And, and I don't know why Paul would have had, again, cognitive dissonance would not explain the conversion mm-hmm. of Saul to, to, yeah. to following Jesus. And, and, and even, and even with, 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 uh, with Peter, um, uh, he may have grieved uh, denying the Lord three times, um, but I think it's also important to realize that uh, Peter also calls himself an eyewitness to 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 uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ as well, and and as one who actually saw the risen Jesus and touched him and so forth. So a lot of this, I call it psychobabble. A lot of this psychobabble that we hear today. If you notice in everything we've talked about so far, Nick, I don't know if you've noticed, there's a common thread here. And the common thread here is there isn't a denial that something happened. I mean, the conspiracy theory admits the tomb is empty. The religious leaders couldn't deny the tomb is empty. They simply explained it away as a tomb robbery. But I think it's important to realize here that that what people are doing here is they're trying to explain away those minimal facts. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the reason for doing so, ultimately, I believe, is spiritual. And that is because Romans 1 says that, that people are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. And by suppressing that truth, 
they run from God and they refuse to to bow the knee to to Christ as Lord and and become accountable to Him. So so when people resort to cognitive dissonance and 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 apply psychological categories to something that happened two two thousand years ago, it's it's notoriously difficult to to analyze people today, mm-hmm. um, much more so two thousand years ago. So. Um, I don't think that the, the cognitive dissonance uh, explains away the, the facts that we have. It, it's very weak. Yeah, and uh, cognitive dissonance, and I suppose as someone who has read Festinger on the topic, yeah. is better. The, the group that holds to the dogma, they usually don't grow too much after right. the destroying event. I mean, there, there are no doubt a few stragglers. I mean, there are people who still believe that David Koresh is the Messiah and that he's going to rise from the dead. There are still people who believe that Sabbatai Sevilla is the Messiah and sure. such, but they, they don't garner much support from outside. No, and I think N.T. Wright, uh, N.T. Wright uh, in his book, uh, Resurrection of the Son of God, he he made a very valid point. He, he said that um, if you look at first century messianic movements, um, he said that they usually ended in one of two ways. Either the messianic leader was killed, and what they would do is either uh, just abandon the, the movement altogether, the movement would just cease mm-hmm. to exist, or they would join another messianic movement and, and pick up the cause. Yeah. So in, in the case of, of Jesus, um, what N.T. Wright has argued is, look, you have this guy who suffers the death of an accursed criminal according to the law of Moses. Whoever hangs on a tree is cursed by God. Mm-hmm. And immediately, in, in, the, in the Jewish framework of things, the disciples, no wonder they were dashed. I mean, he not only dies, but he dies the death, uh, the most awful death of an accursed criminal who's cursed mm-hmm. himself. Yep. And so that would have dashed their messianic hopes immediately. Mm-hmm. The fact that uh, what they did was, well, obviously they, they, they hid in fear and they were, they were scattered uh, when Jesus was arrested. And you don't find these 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 guys thinking, uh, well, you know, we we gotta just continue the cause of the master. No, they're they're disillusioned, they're confused, and no doubt they were upset, they were angry that they've been duped for three years. Uh, and, and then uh, what ha- ends up happening is they start declaring that this this oxymoronic statement, the crucified Messiah, which is, I mean, when you think about it, is the biggest Jewish oxymoron imaginable. No wonder Paul says. That, that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. And a it's not riddle. just for Jews, it's for Greeks too. Greeks, yeah, it's a, it's, and, and a riddle, it's a, it's a joke. Uh, and, so, and so here you have a, a crucified Messiah who is the Son of God, uh, who is the King, uh, and he's risen from the dead. Uh, and, so, and so Christianity, when you really think about it, Nick, the only two mainstreams of Judaism that survived the destruction of the Temple, the Second Temple, in AD 70, the Sadducees disappeared because they were the aristocrats who, who oversaw the temple administration. The, mm-hmm. They were killed off. The Zealots were killed off by Rome. The Essenes, they just disappeared. There's, there's still a mystery exactly where they went or even if they were in Qumran. The only two main streams that survived were the Pharisees and the Christians. Mm-hmm. They were the only Jewish streams that survived. And Phariseeism uh, morphed into Rabbinic Judaism and they, they created the, the whole the concept of uh, Halakha and the Talmud mission and so forth, and the Jewish Christians moved forward into the Gentile world, and the church, uh, the church, uh, 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 began to receive Gentile membership as well. And so, um, and why did this Jewish movement survive? The Jesus movement survived because of the uh, the, the crucified and risen Christ. 
uh, Phariseeism survived because they simply took the language of the temple uh, and they remodeled Judaism uh, on on uh, a hope of a future Messiah, a future temple, and so forth. We haven't got to say much on it, but I, I think it really is important people recognize the shamefulness of how Jesus died. But crucifixion wasn't just we're oh. saying he died, but he died shamefully. I mean, oh. I, oh, absolutely. Yeah. You see, you and I, Nick, we, when we read, uh, you know, Paul saying Christ crucified is a stumbling block, um, we just take that for granted. We just think, well, you know, it's just a stumbling block. You know, they don't get it. But, but what we don't understand is if we place ourselves in that mindset, and mind you, our Jewish friends today, our unbelieving Jewish friends today, still use that argument that, that uh, God's Messiah uh, would, would not suffer such an ignoble death, such a scandalous Muslims death. Muslims use that. They use it too. How could Allah allow uh, his faithful prophet to suffer such a demeaning, yeah. insulting <laughs> death? But, but that's precisely the point. Um, the, the, the fact that the disciples didn't try to hide that, they didn't try to hide that fact that, that, that Jesus actually did suffer the death of an accursed criminal. Um, it shows once again how how strong and and how evident that, that that belief is in the death of Jesus. Yeah, I tell people if you wanted a comparison day, and this sounds crude, but it's the best one I can usually think of. Is that imagine someone running for president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and you find out they have a history of being a convicted pedophile. Yes, yes, <clears throat> yes. The shame, exactly, yep. exactly. What if someone says all this, you know what, it, it's still just hard for me to believe because, I mean, one thing, it involves miracles, and I, I just don't think I can believe in a miracle. Mm. Well, I, I think it, it, it brings us full circle to, to what we said at the beginning of the show, Nick, and that is that at the end of the day, we're, we're all coming to the table with, with our presuppositions. It, it comes down to worldview. We all have a worldview, mm -hmm. and, and those who listen to this program and say, well, well, no, well, you know, that's your bias. Well, we're all biased. Uh, mm -hmm. Everyone has a bias. It's called a worldview. Yeah. And, and the question is, um, if Jesus, if these five minimal facts we discussed are sound, and, and Jesus did rise from the dead, the best explanation that we are proffering here is the same, way, same one that the early disciples used, and that is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, the worldview that says, well, I can't believe in miracles. Well, I think you have to question your worldview. Well, why? Mm. Uh, wh why don't you believe in miracles? Uh, and, and, and why is it that you don't believe that, uh, that God exists? You have yeah. to go back to the drawing board. You've, you've got to reassess your, your presuppositions and so forth. And, and I think it's also important to realize that there's also a spiritual component here. It's not just this... Um, you know, I, I'll only believe if I understand. Um, we, we've, we have this famous quote, I believe it's from Ambrose, who was the teacher of St. Augustine. And it was Ambrose who said, help me to believe so that I can understand. Mm -hmm. And something very, very uh, profound about that statement, because what you've, just, uh, what you've just mentioned there, Nick, is that the most common approach is help me to understand so that I can believe. And what Ambrose was saying was, that we need God to help us to believe so that we can understand. And, and, and what that involves is it involves God's, uh, God's revelation of himself to us. It involves God's uh, move of his Holy Spirit to convict our hearts and so forth. In other words, 
this also involves a, a divine element, and that is uh, we have to recognize that we we need we need God, we need the Lord, we need mm. something beyond ourselves. So it's not just an intellectual uh, argument; it's not just an evidentialist argument. It, it, we also have to acknowledge the fact that uh, we we need to submit to to God. We need to submit to His revelation. We need to submit to the gospel. So it's not something that's that you're just going to discover, like discovering plutonium. It is a spiritual venture. It is something that 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 involves God's grace and and God's revealing Himself to to the person who is curious about the resurrection of Jesus. If someone's wanting a little bit more information about miracles, also in the first year we did the show, we did have Craig Keener come on talking about his yeah. book. Great miracles. book. Yes, I reviewed it. It was one of the hardest books to review because, uh, as you know, Keener is an, an avid writer and. And it was two volumes too, so it's a very large, uh, large work to to review. Yeah, have you seen his X commentary? It's huge. <laughs> yeah. it's massive. Yeah. It's a tome. Yes, we interviewed him on that one also, and I can say this is one time I did not read the book first. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. I wouldn't be able to catch up with it either. Yeah, and you know when I get engaged with people and it comes down to worldview, I also say also because usually it's the burden of proof claim right. comes up, and I say, look, here's how the burden of proof works. If I make an argument, it's up to me to back it. But if you make an argument, you have to back it. And if you have a right. denial, you have to give a reason for your denial. I'm just, I don't believe it. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also important we realize too, Nick, that uh, Jesus uh, performed miracles in the open. Mm -hmm. And and his resurrection was something that uh, the, the early Jewish leadership knew the tomb was empty. Um, but you see, even despite that, there are many who, who continue to disbelieve. And that's because, once again, once you're committed to a worldview um, and, and you refuse to let that worldview be challenged, unfortunately, you're never going to get, you're, you're in a rut. You'll never get out of it. Uh, and, and I think we have to realize that if something is true, then, then we have to follow it. We need to pursue it. Or as Socrates said, follow the truth wherever it leads. And when Anthony Flew did that, what did he do? He, he abandoned atheism. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's important that we allow our views to be challenged and follow the truth where it leads us. And we believe that ultimately that that truth is, is found in Jesus Christ. I think we've had a very thorough discussion on the resurrection here, but it must come to an end, unfortunately. Uh, Dr. Costa, if people want to know more, do you have a blog, website, an email, way they can get in touch yeah. with you? Yeah, well, they, if they want my website, it's just Tony Costa, all one word, TonyCosta.webs.com, TonyCosta.webs.com. And uh, if they want to reach me by email, tmcos at rogers.com. It's also on my website. And do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the Deeper Bartles audience today? Well, the thought that I would leave is, is – is for people to pursue this further. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then the ramifications of that is immense. Mm -hmm. That means that what he said about himself is true. And what that means is that if he did rise from the dead, we have very, very, very strong arguments for the existence of God, that God exists. And for people to realize that, that they have a purpose, that they're not here by accident, that uh, God sent Christ into the world, that God sent his son into the world, uh, he so loved the world that he gave a son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's my prayer that those who hear this will will look further into this, and I pray that God would touch their hearts, and that they would come to know there is in Christ, and to come to know peace, and to come to know what it is to 
to have life uh, eternal uh, and, and have God as Father. And there are plenty of great resources I can use out there at their library. Uh, my father-in-law's book, Resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach, N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God, and Gary Habermas has a plethora of books on the topic. It, if you want the material, it's out there. Yes, uh, definitely. I would I would endorse those books as well. Absolutely, and and uh, any any works by uh, by Dr. William Lane Craig as well yeah. on the subject. Yeah, um, Dr. Costa, just like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully, we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you so much, Nick. It was a, a great pleasure, and, and thank you for this opportunity. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Brian Sands on talk about his book. Everyone loves sex, so why wait? For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off.